Meet Yelp for Restaurants. Not the software company, but the people who love restaurants so much they formed a team dedicated to our industry. Before Catherine joined the customer success team, she managed the modern in New York. Yeah, that modern. Before Julia joined the team, she worked at Oshaval in Chicago for half a decade. Yelp is for restaurants because our people are restaurant people. Meet the new Yelp at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast. Now here we go. The best way for a successful restaurateur to grow and scale their concept is not doing it all on their own. Don't let your ego get in your way because at the end of the day, if you have great food, we can create a system. Chick-fil-A did it. It can be done. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. You know, it's hard not to be a little jealous of franchisees. In my mind, they have this massive advantage over true independence. Why? Because they get a copy of a proven playbook for success, and they start with brand recognition out the gate. But for those of us that choose that independent route, I think there's massive value in taking a peek at their playbook. Today, we chat with Lance Growlage, a franchising expert that has mastered the art of franchising, both as a franchisor and a franchisee. We're going to take a peek under the hood of the machine that Lance uses to scale a concept from one to 100. Well, it's interesting because I was on Wall Street and I realized when I sat in an office on Wall Street, I was like, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this. So I had an uncle that coerced me. He made his money in tech before anybody else did. And he bought a TGI Fridays franchise in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So I was living in New York, working on Wall Street, and I was excited for greener pastures. Arizona was nice, new. But, you know, the part that's probably significant for me that I skipped a little bit is the fact that when I was in college, I actually got a job in the hospitality, you know, bars. And I was a bouncer. I was a bartender. I always loved the customer service aspects of things, had sales jobs growing up, selling things, you know, retail at flea markets, as we called them in New York. I always understood when you were nice to somebody, you usually got a tip of some kind or maybe more money or more sales. It was kind of that give and take or tit for tat. So when I got into the restaurant business with Uncle Steven and we had four TGI Fridays restaurants, which by the way, we built $225 million Fridays franchise. And this is when Fridays was really good. Everything in the old days was made fresh. So it was a pretty incredible operation. We had a lot of acquisitions, new store openings, but I was really bit by the hospitality bug, I guess you can say, working at Fridays. And I said, this is pretty cool. I was probably the only guy with a college degree in those days, but I loved it. I didn't care what I had to do. I just loved the environment. And Fridays, boy, it could take you six months to be a manager for Fridays between working all those positions. They did it the old fashioned way. Oh, they did. It's when you watch the movie Cocktail. I, for yeah, exactly. All of, for all of the millennials listening, they're like, I have no idea what these guys are talking about. But <laughs> the movie Cocktail was what inspired me to get into the industry. And then you find out that that was at a TGI Fridays and that growing up in the 90s, it's a cheesy chain. But in the 70s and the 80s, 
it was the place to go. It, it, it was, was hot. Cool. That's where it was. Potato skins essentially were invented for everyone. I don't know if anybody's eating potato skins anymore, but chicken wings was the hottest thing on the menu there for an appetizer. It was incredible. So you dip your toe in the waters of being a franchisee or working for your uncle that was a franchisee? No, no. Working for a relative that was the largest franchisee at TGI Fridays. I spent over five years there and I really, really got to learn the business. You know, when you go to Friday's corporate training after you're certified in the field as a manager, you have a week you have to spend in Dallas at the corporate office at Friday's University or wherever it was in the old days. And they said to you, you now know more than 99.9% of restaurant owners in America, independent or otherwise. And the truth of the matter is I felt like I got an MBA in restaurant management at that point because they taught you there was a system for absolutely every single thing. And what I learned, even on the accounting side, because now I'm old, I'm 55. And in those days, you're talking late 80s, they were teaching you, you know, the old purchase journal mentality. Each of the stores, the average volume in those days was about two and a half million in sales per store, if I remember correctly. You had a controller, really. There was a position as a bookkeeper that sat in your office that checked inventories. And we had variance reports each week. We would track our P&Ls better than most independent owners track their systems today. It was incredible what it taught me. So as an independent owner and operator, I've never had any interest in owning a franchise at yeah. all, right? Uh -huh. Because my ideas are better. My ideas of are- Of course. That's so what most people think. Right. So much better than everything else that's out there. And <laughs> I think that that's the kind of hubris that makes you an entrepreneur, probably a successful one. Yeah. And that's also the kind of hubris that makes you want to build something entirely new and bring that into this world. Having said that, having had some time on the outside now and having spoken to incredibly successful franchisors and people that have built franchise, their own independent franchises, there's a lot to be said for using what you know to be a successful playbook that you didn't write. I learned how to be a restaurateur only from the restaurateurs that I worked from. They were independents that had one-offs. And so there's this group thing, not industry-wide, even though I could speak to that as well, but in my microcosm, right? Everyone that I had ever worked for or with and everyone that had ever worked for or with me, we all thought the same things because there was no external influences. So the playbook could only be so successful because it was limited by the pool of talent that helped write that book. Talk to me about what the playbook looks like. What is it that franchisors are teaching franchisees about running a restaurant business that independents don't? Yeah, I wouldn't tell you that there's anything in particular that's missing. There's a lot of independents that maybe don't focus. I think of some of my chef friends, and this isn't a fault, but at the end of the day, franchisees tend to be great utility players. They know a little bit about everything, but they're certainly not a master of anything, unless it's something that came from the background, like a legal background per se. A lot of my chef friends would tell me in the past, and of course, they're very familiar in the kitchen. But when it comes to the front of the house, franchisors are teaching people everything about marketing, everything about hiring, the do's and don'ts. Although that's a whole other discussion point here, because 
in the world of franchising, you can't get, you gotta kind of keep it at arm's length on the HR side of things. It's a lot of union related things, joint employer relations and all these legal terms. There was a union trying to organize McDonald's at one point, sort of claiming that franchisees are following the playbook of corporate, including on the HR side. So we should be able to unionize McDonald's because of the same employees, but they're clearly not. There's a local entity that's hiring and doing their own thing, except they're going in accordance with McDonald's systems and procedures. But to your point, the buying power, you know, McDonald's, you're going to be buying exactly what they tell you to buy. Here's the spec. Here are the standards. Here are our uniforms. Here's our uniform vendor. So most of the franchise brands, most of the brands I represent, I don't just represent restaurants, but for the purposes of our discussion, the 200 plus restaurants I represent, they're going to give you all the specs. They're going to help you with a set of plans to start with when you start construction. You're not reinventing anything, the, the wheel, so to speak, on your own. There is a plan for everything from site selection to understanding your demographics on who your customer is. They're going to tell you, I remember my days of Wingstop when I had a new franchisee call me and say, Lance, I think I have a lot of theft. And I said, well, what's your food cost? They told me some outrageously high number. I said, well, you got something going on for sure. Probably theft included. Could be waste. Could be, you know, who knows? And I said, it could be the oil in your fryer. There's too much oil absorption and they're putting out a poor quality product. He goes, well, that's the thing. I'm going through like 15 tubs of oil a week when my neighbor doing the same sales is doing 10. So we had all the metrics figured out on everything. So there was a problem solving or a troubleshooting chart for anything and everything. And look, if you're an independent, you can figure it out on your own. It's just a lot more time and energy and mistakes. And when you have a brand that nobody knows, I mean, I opened my first wing stop in Vegas that did 5,000 a week. It was a young enough brand that nobody knew it. I opened my fourth one and it set a Wingstop record. We did 35 grand opening week, 35 and change with lines out the door. But you have that huge advantage of that name recognition. Let's talk about that. So they give you the playbook, right? Which is just the foundation to win, but not necessarily a win, a guaranteed win. I'll tell you, let's talk about one thing in the process. When you select a franchise, there is a franchise disclosure document that reveals, in most cases, item 19 is the earnings claim. It could tell you sales. It could tell you all kinds of great things so you can build an effective business plan. Average sales, usually they're not going to reveal margins. But the idea is that you have an opportunity now to also talk to existing franchisees in what we call the validation stage. And, and you can talk to them and ask them anything you want. How much money do you make? And the best franchisees, like when people used to call me when I was president of the Franchise Advisory Council for Wingstop or one of the top franchisees of Krispy Kreme in the past, new franchisees before they ever signed would call. Well, tell me, what do you like? What do you not like? Things like that. And we're honest. We only want people that are like us in the business that thought like us, because at the end of the day, the best practices of existing franchisees is almost as important or as important as what you're learning from the training department of the corporation or the franchisor. So that playbook is pretty darn hefty for the non-operator. Now, for those of your listeners that are obviously already in the hospitality business, some of those folks, most people don't have a great original idea that needs to be born in the first place. 
on their own, they think it does, and they go out and they fail because it wasn't even a concept that needed to be born in the first place. But if their friends and family are being honest with them, that might not be an idea that should exist. But that's a whole other discussion in and of itself. I know that fear. The fear of losing everything, or almost as bad. The fear that you'll have to grind on for years at the restaurant without things ever getting better. Hope is nice, but you need help. So I'm going to leverage my 20 years in this industry and the 200 interviews I've done to give you the help that you need. I'm hosting a free webinar this month called The Scaling Session. Over 90 minutes together, I'm going to lay out exactly what you need to do to scale profitability, scale brand awareness, and scale customer frequency. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to sign up today. To make sure that everybody gets what they need from the event, seating is limited. I'm only allowing 25 guests so that you all get the individualized attention that you deserve. Go to restaurantwebinar.com to secure your spot today. How do you drive sales? As a franchisee, when that's what you spend most of your time doing, all of your locations were in the top 1% of sales. But I've got to imagine that, that to a certain degree, you're handcuffed and you have to be innovative, right? Because you're working with a static brand. So you're not doing a goth night at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> you're very limited in the way that you can market this brand. So yeah. how do you end up in the top 1% of sales? What did you know about branding, about marketing that other people didn't? I do know a lot about it. And it's something I've always been interested in. And I was always inquisitive. I created my own brand in Vegas called Pink Box Donuts with a partner and was very successful with that and sold that. And it's still thriving to this day with the new ownership. And that we started from scratch. So let's use Wingstop as an example. And Wingstop, when I joined the concept, first of all, Josh, when you join a franchise, just like when you join a marriage, you need to understand and ask good questions and understand what you're getting yourself into. When I got married the first time, I didn't do a very good job. I picked the wrong wife and it was bad. Similarly, if you pick the right franchise, like I thought Wingstop was the right franchise and it was a great franchise. However, all of a sudden as I'm building my first couple of stores, chicken wing prices skyrocket. Now for every nickel a pound and everybody listening that knows what happens with chicken wing prices specifically, for every nickel a pound, because that's all we had were chicken wings, it could be five grand in expense going out the window or flushing it, you know, down the toilet. So it was enormous and it was detrimental. So at some point I'm like, guys, we got to add other things to the menu. I mean, this is crazy. Now the high volume franchisees, because I was new at the time, didn't care. This is what they were kind of used to. For me, I'm like, this is crazy. I'm not even at break even yet. But over time, as I became president of the Franchise Advisory Council, I had attorneys that were franchisees that were part of my council, and I was president, I was a spokesperson. As you might notice today, Wingstop has quite a few other items besides chicken. So they have chicken fingers, they have, or chicken tenders. They have different potato options besides just the fresh cut fries and different side dish options that have smoothed out that food cost. And the food cost today is much better than it was. But this is why when you look at great franchise brands like McDonald's, the food might not be that fantastic, but it's convenient and it's, you know what you're going to get. A lot of people out there will tell you, you know what you get. You know what a Big Mac's supposed to taste like. And some franchisees are better than others. It might be hotter at one location than the other, and you might get 
more secret sauce or special sauce than another location, which is probably not a good thing either. But at the end of the day, it's consistency and it's a brand that people recognize. And in the early days of McDonald's, some people might remember, like I remember, the filet of fish and the quarter pounder with cheese were invented by franchisees. And they submitted their ideas to corporate and corporate adopted the ideas. And to this day, they're very, very successful menu items. And at Wingstop, the test kitchen was running hard and we found items that made sense to smooth out the food cost. And those are just some of the growing pains. But imagine being on your own to figure that out, not having those resources. You can't be an expert in everything. And in franchising, to you went to refer to that playbook you mentioned earlier, Josh, in franchising, it gives you an opportunity to be the expert in everything. Not you, but you have an expert in everything within arm's reach. It's like with PPP money in the middle of the pandemic. There were quite a few brands that called their attorney, their CPA, and said, I don't know what's going on with this PPP money I keep hearing about, but get our franchisees all that money. And there were a lot of franchisors that got a lot of PPP money for their franchisees with them helping on the applications for their LLCs and what have you. But there's a lot of support, a lot that goes into it. The older I get, the more time I spend in business, the simpler things seem to look. Not that they get any easier, but they all seem simpler, less complex. And one of the things that I found in all of my businesses is that every problem I have is a people problem, every single right. one. And so I'm curious, how did you find talent that could help you scale? Yeah, exactly what you just said. Let's rewind what you just said. I found the talent. So let me give you a story. Krispy Kreme Donuts. We had Nevada and we had Utah. We were the second franchisee. This is in the days before the internet. So there was no LinkedIn, there was no Facebook, there was nothing. There wasn't even an email address. So what I did was I rolled into Orem, Utah, the Provo Orem area where our first store was gonna be. And we were not even under construction yet and I began the search for town. And I didn't place one ad to staff that store. All I did was look at the lay of the land. There was no Google Maps or Google Earth. And I saw that there was a Chili's, there was an Outback, there was an Applebee's off the top of my head, were three restaurants nearby that I knew I could afford to pull talent from to potentially be my first general manager because we did volume. I knew that opening would do 200,000 a week for that Krispy Kreme. And if it fell to 80 or 100,000, we'd be in good shape, which is pretty close to what it ended up being. So I made a list and went back home and back to Vegas, and I called. Now, when did I call these restaurants? When I knew the managers would be there. In the morning, when there was no distractions, they weren't open for lunch yet. And I'd say, my name is Lance. I've got a new concept coming down the block from you, and I'm looking for managers. Obviously, I'm not calling to recruit you. That would be unprofessional. However, I am looking for people with your skill set. If you would like to refer somebody to me, I'll give you my phone number, whatever it might be. And I got a lot of phone calls. Got a lot of phone calls because I'm a nice guy. People like me. People like working for me. I know that from history. And sure enough, the phone kept ringing. I ended up hiring somebody from Applebee's. But let me tell you the best part of the story. Once I had all the interviews lined up, I pretended I didn't really know my schedule as to when I was coming to town. So I asked them their schedule for the following week, all the people I was going to interview. And 
Because how do we know if somebody's good in the hospitality business? We witness them being good. You know how you find a great bartender? You witness a great bartender performing, doing a great job. (laughs) And so I had all these people scheduled and I went to go visit all of these people. They have no idea what I looked like. So I went into Applebee's. I noticed on the outside of the building, there was a piece of neon hanging. I went in and I talked to the hostess. Hey, how long have you worked here? I'm new to town. I make up a story. Hostess like, oh, this is the best Applebee's in the region. We're a training store. She was so proud. I sat at the bar, got the same story. I said, you know, I'm going to grab a sandwich. And I sat down at a table. And guess what? The general manager who I was going to be interviewing that night, obviously not at the location, popped by because I asked the hostess, said, oh, is that so-and-so? And And she said, oh, yeah, he's our general manager. I said, oh, good. A friend of mine knows him. Made up a story. So as I'm eating my sandwich, he walked by my table to check on me. And I said, everything's fantastic. And by the way, notice what I said. He checked on me. It's like a dying art. I don't ever see, hardly ever see managers do table touches. My service at any of my restaurants was always top notch. I was always a top one percenter in anything I did because I care and I pay attention. So sure enough, I said, oh, are you Craig? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, I'm Lance. His eyes lit up and he sat down. He immediately sat down. He said, the neon's broken on the west side of the building. I'm getting it fixed tomorrow. And I said, holy cow, this is my guy. That was the guy I hired. And he became the GM and eventually the district manager. Long story, but effective. And to this day, every time I open anything, I go out and find staff. I tell everybody I know. I go to the Starbucks near my house, or I'm sorry, near the future business, all the other businesses. And I know some people out there are thinking, you're stealing the staff? People are losing their staff on a regular basis because in some instances, they're not doing what they're supposed to. So all I'm doing, like I'll go to the Starbucks closest to my new restaurant and say, hey, Josh, you did a great job. I'm looking for people like you. Here's my card. If you know anybody that's looking, obviously you're happy. But if you know anybody looking, please, I want people just like you. And my phone rings. It's the way it works. Never play sands. Talk to me about evangelism. And by that, I mean, when you open an independent, there's this Jerry Maguire moment, right? Where you're like, who's coming with me? I think it's really easy to get people excited about something new and somebody small that has a dream of being big. And even though that's true for the franchisee, right? The brand doesn't exude that. And so how do you inspire and motivate and encourage greatness in your team as a franchise professional? Yeah. I mean, look, look at Chick-fil-A. Everywhere they open, you can't even get in there. It's a franchise system. People are very proud of their food. They do a great job in hiring top-notch folks. And it's an exciting time. Every time we open a Krispy Kreme donut shop, people were out of their minds. I mean, I helped support in Issaquah, Washington, outside of Seattle, an opening that did $450,000 opening week. Man, how much are you netting out on $400,000 in a week? Josh, in those days when commodity prices were certainly much lower, an average glazed donut, Krispy Kreme glazed donut, if I remember correctly, was no more than eight cents, not counting the box, but the sugar, the glaze, the dough, we're talking eight cents. Now we had $350,000 worth of equipment in those days, just the donut equipment alone. So it wasn't a small equipment package that was all custom made and patented by Krispy Kreme corporate. 
But the evangelism that you speak of is incredibly important because I don't care what you do in the food industry and in the hospitality business. You better be really proud about what you're serving. And to your exact point, I took staff from that worked for me at my wing stops and other places after I sold them. And when I went to open Pink Box Donuts, which was an independent, I started the concept. I had a guy that I knew that was a friend of mine that called me one day and said, can you create us a donut shop? I said, of course I can. I can create anything we want to do. And we created a donut shop. And I sold everybody the vision. We're going to do it better. We're going to do it fresher. We're going to fry twice a day, not just once a day. And we had the freshest, best donuts in Vegas at the time. I mean, I'm assuming they still do. And you as a leader need to show people and be proud of what you have. And others will follow. I mean, your customers as well. Where most people go wrong, independents, franchisees, the leadership or the ownership is usually dragging their ass around the restaurant looking so miserable because they haven't had a day off because 8,000 people called in sick and there's turnover and there's this and there's that. Well, the customers don't care about that. The customers come in like looking everywhere when they go in a restaurant they've never been to and they're finding a reason to come back. Is there value? Is this food good? And you could charge whatever you want for your food if you're going to elevate the experience. But will people appreciate it is the question. So franchising, it's no different on the customer service side. And that is the difference between successful franchisees and unsuccessful franchisees. A lot of people will fault the brand or the franchise system. And the reality is there's a bottom 10% of awful franchisees in every system. It's just the way it is. Let's talk more about Pinkbox. So how do you build a brand that's built to scale? What does that first location look like? What is the ideation and the preparation that goes into that? As probably everybody listening knows, when you're finding your first location for your own brand, you get really emotional because in your mind, you probably created your business plan, whether it was on a cocktail napkin or on a computer. You have this idea with no emotion attached. Well, I need 2,500 square feet. I need X amount of seats, depending on what it is. You have this idea. And then you start looking for sites and what happens. So with Pink Box, initially, I wanted 1,500 square feet. But what did I end up with? 840 square feet. So people listening are like, well, obviously, you didn't make donuts there. Yes, we did. <laughs> we actually fried donuts there and had a little counter. And it ended up being as efficient as it possibly could have in that tiny little space. And I got lucky. I made one phone call because my partner said he would prefer to be in this area, meaning by his house in the northwest section of Vegas. And there was a Starbucks and an Einstein bagels right there in a center closest to his house, a Gold's Gym, the whole nine yards. I called that landlord, one phone call. The landlord said, well, does it 880 square foot? 880, I think is what it was. Up front, it was like a mailbox store. Can you fit in there? I said. We'll give it a shot. But there's an old thing, Josh, you know, the reality versus expectations. And I talk about that in everything in the hospitality business. So it'll probably be my first book that I ever write on hospitality is all about the reality versus your expectations. And we made it work. We made it work. And the good news was financially, it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. Now, our labor was really high because we were inefficient. We were cutting everything by hand. It wasn't like Krispy Kreme. We were at a $350,000 machine. So 
that's another story in itself. We had to create our model again, where the reality now has to meet the expectations. We thought we'd be able to be open six to two. We couldn't make it past 11 or 12 o'clock some days because now the demand was far higher than our supply. And our original baker, who was incredibly talented, that I worked on the flavors with, incredibly talented, he couldn't do it all. He wasn't the right guy. He was the right guy to help on the R&D side, but not the right production baker. So now I found the production baker and took us to the next level. And before you know it, within a year, we were open 24-7. And then how do you scale it? So you built a successful donut shop. That's one. A lot of people can do one really well. But under the hood, what had you built that enabled it to scale? Yeah, it's really as you get to two and three, you got to have everything in place. I mean, you could have everything in place in one if you're that good. I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off because I was doing a lot of duties trying to save us a lot of money in the early days. I could do a lot of things. But you are 100% correct. It's all about getting things to paper, getting systems in place, getting the training dialed in. How do we train a processor, somebody that is really a decorator, that's decorating the donuts, filling the donuts? How do we train them better and faster? By the time we now have two stores, we're realizing that the chocolate all of a sudden looks different at this location than this location. What's going on? The equipment's a little different because we got a better deal on this. We had used equipment over here. We had different donut equipment. So the standardization is very, very important for the consistency. Every independent operator that has two locations wants the chicken parmesan to taste exactly the same at both locations. So you can't use different oil. You can't use different pans. Maybe you can use a different stovetop. Maybe not if the BTUs are off and you're browning it too quickly as opposed to sauteing or whatever. So there's a lot of standardization that needs to be happening. But for me, if you want to know my secret sauce, I would never, ever cut corners on anything. My rule of thumb was if the customer can taste the difference, that's when it matters. If the customer can't taste the difference, then it doesn't matter. We can take a shortcut if it's not going to affect the customer. But if you think of fast food chains, and I'm not going to mention them, but we all know them, and you go through a drive-thru and have a Whopper, okay, I give it away, and it's lukewarm, like at least serve. I know it's not a great piece of meat, but can you not get the darn thing hot? And there was one particular location by my house. The one I was in a pinch, I'd want to go there because I was starving. I didn't eat anything all day. Like, really? So that's when people play games saying I want no mayo or no ketchup. So you try to get the thing hot. So it's no different launching Pink Box. You just want consistency. And you start to realize, you know, when I was at Krispy Kreme, Josh, there was no troubleshooting guide. All of a sudden, I have a new baker. I turn around. I thought he was trained effectively at Krispy Kreme. Even though you have all these machines and all these metrics to what's the temperature of the dough? What's the temperature of the water? Going The slurry, we called it, going into the dough. What were all these things before it hit the proof box? We had all these clipboards, yet the donuts are now balling up, which is the issue when the hole closes up. In a ring donut. Why is the hole closing? Well, we screwed up somewhere. Why? I didn't see a chart anywhere. I mean, I knew why. It was the dough was probably too cold, but there needs to be a chart to that effect that we didn't have. So we created it. In fact, in my garage somewhere, I have that chart. <laughs> 
because we created it. And then Krispy Kreme Corporate adopted it. So again, that's where you all work together because everybody knows it's all about systems, whether you're an independent or a franchise owner. When you have to repeat yourself 7,000 times a year, there's probably a system that you need to put in place, like, like having an orientation for your entire staff so they can hear Josh say the same thing effectively with passion and enthusiasm to get staff excited about who they're working for. You can show up live as well. That's just a bonus, but at least understand the owner's vision. You work with hundreds of restaurant brands that represent thousands of locations across the country. And I'm sure that there is a breadth of knowledge and wisdom just based off experience, right? Just being there. And this is an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to talk directly to the independent restaurant owners and operators that are listening. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice or words of encouragement based off this huge breadth of experience? Yeah. My advice is this, always try to look at your restaurant with a fresh set of eyes on a regular basis. Always be approachable with your staff and always solicit feedback. Sometimes it's difficult, sometimes we're short on time, but it's very, very important when your staff knows you're approachable. I have a gal that I'm friends with on Facebook that started working for me when she was 14 years old which she's allowed with a work card in Vegas. You can limit the hours. You can't work full time. She was one of the best employees I've ever had, period. And we're still in touch. And she's a perfect example because at 14 years old, she would come up to me in my restaurant and say, remember my orientation, you told me that I should speak up if I don't think something's right. And well, the new guy is this or that. But the point is, this is one employee of many that, would tell me everything I needed to know, even when I wasn't there, and would, by default, make the restaurant better. It's a lot of owners that are not like that. You know, they don't believe in, call it tattletaling, call it whatever it is. If this is your business, take it very seriously. Sometimes you don't get a do-over. You can't just lose money forever and think all of a sudden, magically, you're going to make money. And your reputation is truly everything. So focus on your employees, and they will obviously, in turn, focus on you. And then the other thing I could tell you as far as a tip, the best way for a successful restaurateur to grow and scale their concept is not doing it all on their own. Put your knowledge to paper. I'll help you set up a franchise system. And that's the other part of my business is growing and scaling independent businesses through a franchise system. And don't let your ego get in your way. Because at the end of the day, if you have great food, we can create a system Chick-fil-A did it. I don't know what the majority of your audience's opinion is on Chick-fil-A, but they do a good job. They're consistent. They have great staff. And it's one of America's top brands, if not arguably, they're the top food brand. It can be done. That's Lance Kralich. For more on his company, visit ionfranchising.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.